Hi, and welcome to the Healthy Jism podcast, a panel discussion on behaviors, innovation, and trends in health and self-care. My name is Christophe Choquet. I'm the author of the book called Healthusiasm and a global keynote speaker on the future of health and self-care business. Every month, I discuss with a panel of experts the positive changes that are shaping our health and happiness. And today, we have two panelists. Calling in from Barcelona is our digital health connector, Aline Noiset. Hola. From Belgium, Ghent, Belgium, human experience expert, Mo Zouina. Hello. This means that we are missing out our, on our American in Paris, our medical expert in digital health, Aditi Joshi, and from London, our customer experience expert, Krupa Sutar. In that case, we always invite a special guest to our panel, some new blood, some other expertise. And so we did this time. It is a special guest and we will introduce him in with the fourth section segment, Inside Out, Outside In. But today, together, we want to amplify the healthusiasm that we see in articles, new business ventures, or simply even in the world around us. Now, if you're new to the show, you might wonder what healthusiasm is all about. Well, healthusiasm is the aspiration that we all have to be healthy and happy. And as a result of this, every company or organization is now more than ever focused on making their customers healthier and happier. So tell me, Aline, what healthism did you witness in the past months? So the, my first healthism is actually a very fresh one from yesterday. It's from Noom. Uh, so Noom just announced that now they will be prescribing drugs, like obesity drugs. So Noom is a well-known digital health app, and they have been helping patients to lose weight for four years and really focusing on nutrition and physical activity with psychological support. So different techniques to help the, the people staying engaged and lose weight. And now, so yesterday they announced that they're going to introduce new med and they will start prescribing obesity drug called uh, GLP-1. So it's a drug that's been proven to, to help people lose weight. So this is actually not for everybody. So you have to qualify to receive that prescription. So it's mainly for the people who have a BMI of at least 30 or at least 27 if you have a weight-related medical condition. So you will have an appointment with a, a physician or um, a nurse practitioner. So they will do a health evaluation of your health of status. You will have a blood test. And based on those results, the clinician will actually create an individualized plan for your health. And if you qualify, they will decide to prescribe that drug that I, I mentioned before. And all that plan will be accessible through the Noom app that we mentioned before that's already known. So a combination of drug, if you qualify, and still the nutrition and exercise tools that they've been doing very well for, for years. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, um, evolution, right? We, uh, we talked about it in previous podcasts as well, the weight loss jab, and how even Weight Watchers who for many years went away from weight loss as even a word they were using because they changed their branding to WWW, I believe, is now going back to the weight loss focus, specifically because those brands are on the market. So it's interesting to see how Noom is now going in that same direction. Now, also from a personal nutrition exercise and a consultation point of view, I've noticed as well another innovation, health enthusiasm, made by or put to the market by High V, which is a supermarket in the midwestern and southern part of the United States. And so what they unveiled is actually a um, health and wellness subscription program. And it includes personalized nutrition. 
getting uh, at least the counseling around personalized nutrition. It does some preventative health screenings. It has fitness videos, virtual classes. So a supermarket that goes into a subscription program specifically around nutrition and healthy lifestyle. And it's, it's not very much of a big surprise because they already had in their supermarkets and, you know, about two free health screenings per year. They have some pharmacies tied to the um, to some locations of the supermarkets, and they have a team of registered di- dietitians very often present in supermarkets as well. And so the reason why they're doing this is because consumers they they really think that the supermarket is a perfect place to focus on their health, obviously. But at the same time, retailers and, and grocers especially they they are facing increasing pressure. You know, their core business is under pressure. And so what we see is that they're looking for additional revenue and profits. And because, because actually the healthcare and, and wellness, mainly the healthcare industry, they lack a little bit of consumer friendliness, to put it nicely. They think that they have a great opportunity to play in that area. So that's why we see a lot more retailers, definitely in the States already, are, that are focusing on these health and wellness solutions. And in this time, it is a um, subscription program. Mo, what health adjustment did you see? Well, I'm coming back on a topic that we might have addressed earlier. I think it was Krupa that said, you know, that there was a, a kind of a threshold between linearity, uh, the linearity between making money and being happy. I'm challenging that again because uh, some recent information said that the previous insights we had are being challenged. We delve into a long-standing question, can money buy happiness? And in a groundbreaking joint study published in the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences, the famous Daniel Kahneman of the book Thinking Fast and Slow and Noise, you know, how, how we are flawed in decision-making, partnered up with Matthew Killingsworth. And they questioned the widely accepted notion that happiness levels off after a certain income threshold. Kahneman, which is a Nobel Prize-winning economist and psychologist, he had previously suggested that emotional well-being peaks at an annual income of $75,000, while Killingsworth research. 2021, by the way, refuted this. He said that well-being can continue to rise even beyond 200,000. Now, what's interesting about this is that two scientists who have different views decided to fight it out. And they said, you know what? Let's settle this debate, you know, and let's pit these theories against each other. And with the help of an arbiter, the researchers adjusted for inflation and surveyed over 33,000 employees aged between 18 and 65 in the United States, and they reported their level of happiness using a smartphone app called Track Your Happiness, which prompted them at random moments to describe their feelings at random intervals throughout the day. Now, the findings were twofold. That very interesting conclusion. Firstly, for most people, happiness continues to rise with income, even at higher ranges. This suggests that you know having more money can lead to increased happiness. However, The study also identified a distinct group, roughly 20% of the participants, who experience diminishing returns on happiness as their income rises beyond a certain threshold. And that is mainly due to the challenges that come with making more uh, money, like heartbreak, bereavement, or clinical depression, which money alone cannot alleviate. But what's also interesting is it also acknowledged that happiness is a dynamic concept, you know, with varying degrees among individuals, while money positively impacts happiness. For most people, it also recognizes that there is a ceiling for happiness. You know, uh, it's not heaven, the ceiling for happiness. But furthermore, the study revealed that the impact of money on happiness differs depending on income levels and 
what's really interesting is you get happier in the beginning of making more money, but you get less happy at the end of making more money. So for lower income classes, the effect on your happiness is more tangible than for people that start at a higher level and become more rich. Now, just to conclude, Matthew Killingsworth, the happiness researcher involved in the study, emphasized that money is not the sole determinant of happiness, but one of many factors, just like health is multifactorial, happiness is multifactorial. And while it cannot guarantee happiness, having more money can provide some degree of support. It's important to remember that true happiness encompasses various aspects of life beyond financial well-being. Now, as we conclude, as I conclude on this health enthusiasm, which once again, yes, Christophe, I know is longer than the rest, we have discovered that the relationship between money and happiness is nuanced. And the study also highlights that existence of unhappy minority who face personal struggle cannot be resolved through wealth alone. It also made it to social media, which is also interesting, with some witty reactions, which I absolutely want to finish with. Anyone who says money doesn't buy happiness just doesn't know where to go shopping. So that's one thing that I saw on social media. And another tease, money won't make you happy, but it's nicer to cry in a Ferrari. So uh, <laughs> that's my enthusiasm for uh, this month. Thank you, uh, Mo. You seemed very happy when you uh, when you said those jokes. So uh, there, there's a there's a lot of uh, it's multifactorial uh, factorial as you said indeed. And yeah, indeed, I think with the the emotional well being, mental health is, is has always been a, a, a recurrent topic in our, our podcast. I think even last time we talked about the problematic media use, and it is something that we we already mentioned a couple of times. But again, I think it, it's worth mentioning again because I think. There's, there, there were two examples that I saw passing by in the, in, in the last month that I, that I really liked. And they were both related to mental health and technology. And the one was from Dove, the personal care brand by Unilever. I don't know if you saw, you seen it passing by, but they released a three minute short film and they, they called it the cost of beauty. And the short film actually tells a true story. It's a true story of a young person. I think she's called Mary. And it shows how she was, how her mental health was actually affected by social media. So it all contains real images from when, when she was a kid, when she was laughing, and then the moment when she received her first uh, smartphone, and then some videos from when she was doing some selfies and, and how she actually started having um, an eating disorder because she wanted to look in a certain way. And so it's really, really nice campaign. It's a very, very emotional video of three minutes. You have to look it up, The Cost of Beauty by Dove. And it's about kids' online safety. And it's not the first time that they actually have done such a thing. Um, I think they, and already in 2021, they had the selfie talk. And then later on, they had the no digital distortion, which all were campaigns, marketing campaigns, advertisement campaigns around online safety for children. So I really like that example. Go and check it out on YouTube. Um, and another one, which was pretty funny, but which, which makes you think, and maybe we'll talk about it in the podcast later on as well, is something that ASICS has done. Mo, remind me again, ASICS stands for? Uh, it stands for Anima Sana Incorpore Sano. Exactly. So what, what they try to mean or do with that is that saying that you need to have a, a good mental health and a good body. And, and when they're talking about exercise, they always say you don't need to exercise just to look good or to build up muscle. You do, you do also exercise to, for your brain to feel better for your own mental health. However, if we ask artificial intelligent models today to create something around exercising or workout, what you'll see is people with lots of muscles and six packs. And so what they try to do now is they, they want to, you know, change this unrealistic body standards 
because this has a huge impact on our mental well-being, they say. And so what they are doing, they are training AI models to help AI understand what exercise really looks like. And so every one of us, if you're working out, what you can do is you can post your images online. I'm not quite sure whether you guys are doing that, but if you would, you could do it with the hashtag training AI and also tagging ASICs. And by doing that, they will add it to the database so that AI learns and knows that exercise is not just about building muscles and six-pack, but it's also about the mind. Two amazing examples of companies outside of the healthcare industry who are focusing very much on mental health. Let's go back to Aline. You had another health thesis, I believe, right? Yeah, exactly. I have another one that's complementing one that we mentioned already a few months ago. So if you remember in January, Withings uh, launched their U-Scan device so to analyze the urine in the toilet. And this month, I read about another innovation in the toilet. So I think it's interesting to see so many innovation in the toilet. It makes sense at the same time. So this one is the smart toilet that can check heart health. And they recently received FDA clearance. So this one is a, a toilet seat that it's a monitoring system that helps to spot the signs of congestive heart failure. So it has been developed by Rochester Institute of Technology. And actually, so it's a toilet seat with sensors embedded in it that will monitor a person's heart rate, blood pressure, oxygenation levels, and amount of blood pumped out of the heart. And the idea is actually so to provide that device, FDA clear device, to the hospitals, and the hospital will give them to the patients when they are discharged for the hospital to do the, 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 the uh, monitoring at home. And the idea is really, we talk a lot about prevention, about early de detection. So to alert the healthcare professionals of any worsening condition before something bad happens to those, to those patients. So I thought it was very interesting. And quite uh, when I read it at first, I'm like, how can you actually check the, someone's heart just by sitting on the toilet? No, but yeah, I think it's very promising. So Aline, Run that by me again. You leave the hospital with a drug prescription and a toilet seat. Exactly, yeah. Okay. And so if you then go to that person's home to eat and you go to the toilet, <laughs> then you have your, <laughs> at the same time, everything checked. Uh, lovely. Thanks for these uh, health TSM examples. I, I have one more. I always try to end with a, a little bit of uh, a funny one, although this one was already pretty funny, Aline. But did you know that boring podcasts is on the rise? There is a, I hope we don't, I hope we don't uh, meet those criteria, but there's a growing number of what they call sleep casts. And basically they are made, there's podcasts made to calm the minds of frustrated insomniacs. And there's a lot of, a lot of them out there. Some episodes have been listened to about 260,000 times per month, 260,000 times per month. It's, it's really a growing business of what they call the inattention economy, because we live in a world that is, you know, tragically not boring, let's say. And so what they try to do, people are, have too much similar things that stimulate them all the time. And so how can we, you know, make things more boring? And if we want to go to sleep, how can we then go faster to sleep? And there's, there's this one example, this guy called Boster, B-O-S-T-E-R, he apparently had the most boring voice ever. Uh, he was, he had a sales job before and then he, he realized that he couldn't sell anything because people were just so bored of him. And so he started such a podcast in 2019 
And just to say what it is really about is that his first episodes, or for the first episode, he read the Wikipedia page for the word gilet. So a sleeveless jacket, a waistcoat, right? So he just read the Wikipedia page. That's what he did. And that's the, that's the podcast. Boring podcast. It is something that is amazingly on the rise. Some sort of health enthusiasm, let's say. But it is a health enthusiasm world indeed. And so many positive changes, as we have seen, are making our world a little healthier and happier every day. I personally, I really enjoy watching these changes unfold. I even analyze them and try to understand the broader impact of these changes. I even write a newsletter about it called It's a Health Enthusiasm World. If you're interested, go and discover them on healththusiasm.com. Now, every month during the Health Enthusiasm podcast, I'll recap one particular newsletter for the panel to debate. And this month's newsletter is actually, well, it's not a newsletter. Let's just get into it. Why isn't it a newsletter? Well, it's been three months since my last newsletter. You have to know that normally I write newsletters every two weeks. And a part of the reason is that I have had too many keynotes right now, which is a good thing. Too many personal keynotes, which asked quite a lot of bit of work. Uh, it took some time away. But there's another reason. And I realized that last Friday, I went to see a stand-up comedian uh, the other day, a Belgian guy called Lieven Scherre. Um, he has a two-hour show on artificial intelligence, and it's, it's really super interesting. But at some point, he said, the day that AI can tell a joke with a great punchline and a great timing might be the day that I walk away from being a comedian. And so I have been having a writer's block ever since I took a subscription on ChatGPT. And you see, you know, I'm really proud about my newsletters. I have about a couple of thousand, 5,000 subscribers, which is not, I mean, that huge, but the opening and click-through rates are really, really high. If I talk about these numbers to digital marketeers, they say they hardly believe it's, that, 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 that are the real numbers. And I really believe that the opening rate and the click-through rates are that high because I put IDs and trends out there that you cannot read anywhere else. Now, since ChatGPT, I have to say I don't feel that way anymore. I mentioned before on the show that I, that I use ChatGPT as some sort of sparring partner. You know, I bounce off IDs, I ask questions, think out loud together with someone or something else, you know, the chat GPT thing. And so when doing that, I mean, obviously chat GPT doesn't write in an engaging way, but if I ask it a smart question, it often sums it up, sums up the right things, the things that I've been doing research on for several weeks, maybe even months. So I kind of start to feel like that comedian. And I wonder whether I should walk away from writing newsletter altogether, because I have to say it really blocks me and being creative. I even lose an enormous amount of time. I write a newsletter, go to ChatGPT, and then I realize that that basically the same content is coming out of an AI. And so it really, really gives me a lot of stress. And that's one of the reasons why I haven't put out a newsletter in three months. Um, but it also made me realize that there is an, that, that this is actually a negative effect of AI that, first of all, I haven't heard, felt before, but maybe that I even did not realize fully upfront. And so that is why I, instead of just bringing a newsletter again, I wanted to ask the panel, what are potential negative effects on our health and well-being that are caused by artificial intelligence that maybe we should anticipate a little bit more? And yes, I allowed them to ask ChatGPT this question as well. So let's see what they've come up with. Mo, what's your thought on this? 
I think it's an incredible topic. Huh? Uh, I think it's very hard. I think it, it requires a lot of debate. But I think where, where the danger is, is that we use artificial intelligence for care. There's a difference between diagnostic therapy and care. I don't know how good ChatGPT or artificial intelligence will be in caring. Maybe we'll talk about it in the, in the next topic. But I also see the erosion of human advice, as you say, putting your newsletter out there and having your kind of the way you curate information to know exactly whether or not it's relevant for your audience. I think HEPs are going really going to have a tough time convincing people that they are right. Uh, we all see it with Google, uh, where people just browse for advice on conditions, but don't know how to contextualize that. So the second risk, I see the erosion of human advice and trust overall. And then in the care, let's say that we can automate that. We shouldn't forget the power of placebo, the fact that you just got attention from someone uh, in the caring path. There is a famous quote that says, you know, if you have a cold and you go to the doctor, it takes about, and you get a prescription medication, it takes three days to get rid of the cold compared to where you don't go to the doctor, it takes seven to 72 hours, which is kind of the same. If we automate care at scale, we will have a lot of healthy people, but people that are alone and didn't have placebo effect. So I don't know if that, that we want that. So I think the erosion of advice is one thing. The erosion of trust is a second thing. I think the difference between diagnostic therapy and care is something really, really important that we should take into. And then our sense of critical thinking, I think is also, I think as we go and technology helps us, we get addicted to thing, to things that reduce our critical thinking. We just get addicted to that. And, uh, and then the last thing is that all the data that is used by AI is flawed by definition because it's human. So how curious will we be? How curious will we continue to be to innovate? And, uh, you know, we talked about Ozempic. Ozempic isn't a weight loss drug. It is a diabetes drug that has a side effect of weight loss. Uh, Viagra isn't an erectile dysfunction drug. It was discovered when for a blood pressure drug, right? So the fact that we are creative and that we have a sense of critical thinking and that we stay curious is also something that I think in terms of health, that we look for new solutions, new innovations and things like that might be, might be challenged. So once again, I wasn't short, <laughs> but I think there's a, lot, there's a lot going on there. I like, I like the way that you put it forward in a sense that, yeah, will we lose curiosity is, is one of the downsides. I think that that is very important. Will we lose, you know, the unexpected surprise because of AI? This could be a downside that maybe we should be thinking about. Aline, I'm sure you have some other thoughts uh, or maybe similar thoughts. Uh, what do you think? Well, actually, if you don't mind, I'm going to answer that question in a different way. So instead of focusing on the outcomes and what I was thinking and what came out of the, that reflection, I will focus more on the journey. So doing that exercise that you did with your newsletter with that question. So I thought it was actually fun to, to sit down and first like, God, like I, I was not too sure. I thought the question was challenging me. I'm like, okay, I had some ideas coming. And then when I was satisfied with those answers, I asked chat, chat and GPT. And I thought that was interesting because I was actually happy to see that some of my hands answers, chat GPT didn't have them. I'm like, yes, yes, I got it. And then for some others, I'm like, ah, I didn't think about that. So I thought it was actually 
it was a great process. And it was, you mentioned that before, Christoph, I think like a, a bounce back brainstorming, having someone I can actually kind of chat with and uh, build on what I was thinking, but still having some new information from, uh, from that, no? But maybe to come back about your initial comment about your newsletter and um, not being sure of writing a newsletter, if you were bringing value or not, I have something to share with you that maybe will make you feel better. A few months ago, I was at a conference and I met someone who was presenting a book that he, he wrote a few months back. And the book was about healthcare and wellness. And we chatted after, after that in one of the networking events. And that person was telling us that it doesn't have any background in healthcare. It doesn't really know about healthcare. And the way he's actually getting his information, his inspiration from the book was by following KOL and influencers online. And the one person he mentioned was you, Christophe. So he's actually following you, your newsletter. And I can understand, I mean, your newsletter are, they get to the people, you talking to the people. So I think that's something chat GPT is not doing. That's what I was reflecting on when I was reading the answers from chat GPT. Like I had to sit down and read carefully what chat GPT was telling me. So maybe the ideas were similar to what I had in mind, but it was hard for me to digest the information that chat GPT was sharing because of the way it's, it's written. And I think that you in your newsletter, that's something that you, you, you does better. You do better. And you understand your audience and you talk to your audience in a more, I would say, human way. So yeah. So maybe conclusion is like, please keep writing your newsletter. Because not everybody's going on chat GPT to ask that. Like we still need that human touch. And we believe in the, in the person who've been positioning themselves as a expert in those topics. Yeah, I'll, t- I'll take it with me. Thank you for that for that compliment. Maybe I'll need to reschedule my weekend and, and do some writing again. Yeah, so I, I, do, I do believe there's some, you know, the, the personal aspect of, of writing is not yet there with, with artificial intelligence, although it will be pretty quickly. There's another aspect that I think that will be important when, it, when we think to the downsides or the risks related to artificial intelligence. Um, and it's also, I already mentioned it in my newsletter, which was about the trends for 2024, the health and self-care trends for 2024, which I think will be, which have a, which might have a huge impact on, on, on people in, in the near future. And that it has to do with consciousness because somehow, I mean, think about it. Consciousness is what makes us different from animals. We as human beings, we, we need our consciousness to survive. We take in signals during every moment of our lives. And then we take conscious decisions with that. At least our minds take conscious decisions. We're not always aware, but it, it, our mind is conscious about them. And so I keep on wondering, with all these algorithms, what if our consciousness will decrease because so many things are taking over in our lives? So what will then happen? And it may sound stupid, but it, it actually is, a, it is already happening. Think about the GPS. We have no clue where we are driving if we haven't been to that place before. We just follow that voice or the, or the, the image in, in front of us or the screen in front of us. Think about the echo chamber effect. I mean, the, the social media algorithms force us to consume certain information. And as Mo was saying, I mean, there's less surprise, there's less unpreparedness. We just, we are less looking for information and bumping into information. We just get them presented based on something. Same goes for music. 
I used to carefully select music that I wanted to buy or listen to. Now I use Spotify and because there's so much in Spotify, I just let the Spotify algorithm decide what music that I, that I want to hear based. And then it is, it is then based on my other choices, which probably were already, you know, suggested by Spotify anyway. So, I mean, there's this whole thing that I think around consciousness and if AI becomes even more present in our lives, the question will be, how will that impact our consciousness even further? And how will that diminish our human being being, um, if you will? That is one of the things that I, that I still had in mind. Um, obviously, there's a lot of other things. I mean, will it change your social interactions? Because, I mean, you already see that now these days. I mean, youngsters, if you go out and you talk to somebody, they're, they're a little bit less spontaneous than I believe 20 to 25 years ago was, was the case because they're used to chatting online. So I, I, th- I think that might change with AI as well uh, when we spend a lot more time uh, online. Mo, you had something to add here. Yeah, I also think it will reshape our relationships. I think the fact that we've been serviced so well preemptively on the things that we like might also influence the effort we put into relationships. If the relationships don't service us as well, uh, we might opt out of relationships because it's too much work. We're serviced by brands and technologies in a certain way that if someone is not a perfect match, if it's too hard or they think differently and things like that, we just opt out. And I think that's also really the fact that you have a, an unconditional friendship, right? If there's a little bit of friction in a friendship, you say, well, maybe that person isn't for me and you look for something else. I think that's also not only consciousness and awareness, but also in relationships. Yeah, totally. I think there's a lot to be said. I thank you, Aline, for motivating me to write the newsletter again. I think the consciousness consideration, which is the trend that I wrote about um, here as well, that I'm writing and researching and writing about right now as well, is upcoming. I, I had to laugh when you said some elements were in the chat GPT enter and some elements were not, because I haven't found in chat GPT anything related to consciousness when it comes to the downside of, of artificial intelligence. So ironically enough, AI is, is not aware yet. So let's see how that um brings. Alin, tell me. Yeah, I think maybe something that I found is that ChatGPT was staying on a quite a high level, but not really concrete example. And, and this, we know, I think if, if you ask ChatGPT for a concrete example, it will tell you you can't answer. But that's what I'm missing. That's what we can do. I think that's a differentiation between um, yeah, our own and opinion as well. I think that that's something that you can't really, ChatGPT won't express an opinion the way we can do it. So that's also... Not yet. Not yet. Not yet, yeah. It's like a comedian. I mean, it can write jokes, but the punchline and the timing of the joke might be still difficult for uh, an artificial intelligence uh, software. And just to finish off, it's just text, guys. If you add nonverbal communication and a, an avatar to it that gets better and better at delivering that content. You know, as you said, if you have someone tomorrow talking you through that information, Aline, right, it might be different. I'm not a good, very good of a reader, but I think I'm quite good as a listener. So I think that might also change uh, in making it more convenient and being able really to bounce back ideas, as you said, with a with a figure or a personality that sits in front uh, of you. Maybe you saw Percy Meshko. He launched his avatar a few weeks ago. I think it was interesting to see. Uh, I was a bit confused because the, the hands were moving in a, in a weird way. His, his eyes were not moving at all. 
But otherwise, like, it looks really real. The hands were pretty much the same thing as Bertalan does. <laughs> so, but he does move his hands in a weird way, if you ask me. But, um, but indeed, the, the, his voice was totally different and his face was recognizable, but it wasn't really human. So let's see how that evolves. So thank you for that discussion, guys. Now let's move to the next segment of the Healthy Jason podcast. Is it something, nothing or everything? Every month, one of the panelists brings an ID, an innovation or an evolution forward that sparked their health enthusiasm. The rest of the panel will then debate and share their opinion about it. Do they find it something, nothing or everything? Aline, what sparked your health enthusiasm this month? So it's uh, a news coming from Apple. So Apple recently announced that they are launching an AI-powered health coach and they're going to name it Quartz. So the idea is to offer hyper-personalized coaching for, for fitness, nutrition, and sleep using the data that they collect through the Apple Watch. So I think, you know, we've been talking a lot about Apple, the Oura ring, like other rings, like which one is better than the other. So they're also getting into, into that game and also planning on um, developing that coach on the iPad with some images, some graphs. And what they want to do is really to encourage people to take care of their health and also their emotional and mental well-being while keeping them engaged. That will be so imagine like you have the Apple Watch on your on, on your wrist and you can just ask Siri to audit your diet on your work plan on the spot and get in real time su suggestions. So you, you don't have to to wait. It's really like on demand, always, always on you to get feedback on how you're doing, what you should do, etc. And what they want to add as well, I think that's very interesting. They want to analyze the tone of the voice, the words that you use. And also they can, if you look at the, the phone or the, the tablet, they can also analyze your, your face to have a clear idea about your health state. And for example, detect depression before it starts. So we know that some... Uh, Some groups are also working on that. You have some online therapists. You're doing the session with them and they can really detect your state or your, your early stage of depression just looking at, uh, at your face or the words that you, that, that you use, et cetera, or the tone, the tone of your voice. So I think this is very aligned with the world today. Now we see that the patients are more empowered and we've talked about that already today and in other, other sessions. They want to care better care. They want to take better care of themselves. And we also see parallel to that, the rise of health coaches to really help those patients to achieve their goals. But in health coaches, it's really human to humans. And in that case with Quartz, I think my question to you is like, Is it a real threat to health coaches? Like, can AI really replace a human when it comes to empathy, for instance? And that's something maybe we touch a bit before now. And I think that reflection can actually can actually be applied to healthcare professionals as a whole, not just the, the health coaches. So, Mo, let's start with you. What do you think? Well, I have a, maybe a challenge. Who says we are good at empathizing as human beings? I think I applaud it. Because empathizing is a lot of work. It's one-on-one. -on -one, we can't scale it. And if we get better and technology does a better job at it, you know, I think there's quite some arrogance by saying, you know, can it be better than a human being? Well, who says we're good at it? I don't think we're good at it. If you look at the state of mental health today, it's not because people are surrounded by empathizing people. 
right? So I applaud it. I applaud it. And I think we owe the evolution of human species to our ability to process and transfer information. You know, language, mind reading. You know what mind reading is in, in behavioral psychology? It's looking at someone without them talking and knowing exactly. If I sit next to my car and I'm, and I'm going over my pockets, I can see that the, that person is looking for his keys and there's distress with it and he's panicking so I can come and help him. So if we use technology for doing some better mind reading, hello, you know, let's bring it on. If we can do it at scale, let's bring it on. Because we know that from a human perspective, it's hard, it's time consuming, and it has no business model. If we start a business of empathy or a marketplace of empathy, I would really, really applaud that. And if it can help people do better things with their lives, I can also really applaud it. So I just say, bring it on. I think that empathy, like especially you know, when you go and see a healthcare professional or coach, you also want that, that human touch, that person that will listen to you and try to give you some advice. And I think there's also that physical part. So last week I saw a, a fun video of a healthcare professional. I think it was a surgeon. It was before the, the operation of one of his patients. And he was actually going to the operating room, being on the bed of the patient, accompanying the patient, or being on the same bed. And that's something that like a AI coach could never do. You know, that really that physical presence or if healthcare professional just give you a hug or, you know, pat you in the back when he announces a bad news. That's the part that I would be missing with such a coach like, like Apple. I totally agree with you, but it doesn't scale. And the problem is you are left hungry until that moment that you have human interaction. So if we can cater outside of that human interaction and also be empathetic in that way, we wouldn't depend as much from that, you know, pat on the back. I think it's really interesting, but we are looking at incredibly empathizing moments that are very scarce to kind of challenge the bigger need when there is no one. If we can get off the peaks of empathy when it's really critical and live more empathizing interactions with technology based on what we need, what we, as Christophe says, what our aspirations are, and be more, you know, in a nudging way, if we spread the effort across the entire journey in a more equitable way, I think we're better off than living off these peaks of healthcare professional, which are scarce and very expensive and only there when it's really, really, really critical. So I think in the entire journey, if we can spread the empathy better over the entire care journey, I think it might be, might be better for everyone. I think this could be a really, really big leap for health and self-care. I think if software could understand emotions, uh, we really could go from measurements to something that's actually really useful. Whether it's called artificial emotional intelligence, emotion AI, emotive AI, effective AI, or artificial empathy, as you said. I mean, it's really all about processing and replicating human emotions, right? And the great thing about it is that it will help human-machine interaction and it will make it more authentic and natural. That's why probably Apple is doing this, because it will personalize user experience. It will increase customer engagement, as you say, and that is definitely something that we are, I mean, having difficulties with in health to engage people sometimes. And so I really, I already wrote about it in a newsletter, and it's one of my next newsletters as well, is that I, I really believe that emotion AI will be a major trend in the two to five years coming. Um, think about it. Five years ago, we talked about AI as being, or in such a way, we said that AI will never replace humans because humans are creative. Right now we have 
AI that is super creative, that can write books, can do paintings and all that. In five years' time, our narrative that AI couldn't do anything creative is gone. I think the, the same thing will happen in emotions, is that we will see in two to five years' time AI being very emotional. And it's not by surprise that Siri already, I think six, six or seven years ago, already hired several dozens of psychologists. I mean, Apple did it for to train Siri. Also, Amazon has a patent to detect stress and do exactly the same thing as as, um, as Apple tries to do. But there's many other startups, Happyfy, I mean, Twill now, they do similar things. Lucid, based on your emotional situation, they will they will play different kind of music. You can find that in cars as well. Feel is one of the, the startups that I always use in my um, keynotes as well, which uses cognitive behavioral therapy based on your actual emotional states. So I really think that all of this that is happening will massively impact the way that we interact with humans, even though, of course, I mean, the accuracy and usability is still difficult. I mean, it will be difficult to label emotional content I mean, just based on, you know, the data that it, con- that it um, gathers. Anger and excitement and voice, it's all high-pitched. Facial expression, anger and disgust, they kind of look similar. So it will take a little while because it's so subjective. Even science are not, so the science community is not really out, I mean, is, is struggling with it. By the way, um, I've read somewhere that researchers at the AI Now Institute in New York, they asked legislators to forbid the use of sentiment recognition in high stakes decision making processes like recruitment, like intake conversations for um, insurance companies. And the main reason was simply because it's hard to back it by, by science. That's also why Microsoft in 2022 announced that they will stop selling and investing in emotion recognition software because it's hard to, um, I'm, I'm pretty sure they'll come back by the way, but um, back then they said it, it's, it's just too hard. There's too much bias. There's too much difficulties. So yeah, I mean, talking about empathy, as you said, Aline, what will be a relationship with, with emotion sensing machines? Will they provide empathy? It might be definitely will help us to, you know, understand how people are feeling, helping in diagnosis of mind, mental health, maybe even measuring resilience of cancer patients. So I really believe that it will increase the empathy of caregivers, for sure. The question is, will that caregiver be a human being? Will it be a software? Will it be a robot or will it be a digital human, as you already mentioned in previous podcasts as well? That is all remains to be seen, because I agree with Mo, who says that we as human beings are, are good at empathizing. So I'm, I really think this will be a big, big thing. And it will probably one of the breakthrough pillars of digital health. But I think it's also about like being listened to. You know, that's something that happens a lot in healthcare. You go to, the, to your healthcare professionals, like it doesn't listen to you. It lasts for five minutes, next, next patient. But you don't want to be just a number. You want to be a patient, a human person. But maybe where I see the risk with solution like, like Quartz, and I think it's amazing like to have a support on demand whenever you want it. But will that empathy be, tell me what I want to hear? Or is it going to tell me what is good for me? Because sometimes even as a patient, we are listened to, but there are things that we don't want to listen because we don't like the sound of it, but that's what's good for us. So I think that would be an interesting, uh, interesting development. Mo? The way we portray AI is that it's dehumanized. But it's not, because AI is fed human models. It is also, I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of RLHF. It's reinforcement learning, human feedback. So basically, the model is trained based on, and then humans try to model it in a way that mimics 
what it is. So I, you know, dissociating AI from humanity is not so because it's still navigated and modeled by humans who try to reinforce the learning. There's also a closed loop based on engagement. So we will keep, we will keep feeding the system with real-time feedback on what the emotional impact is for us. So it will, it will get better. Second, I've had a podcast with Eva Blancard, which is a famous photographer, and she also makes programs, and she went to Japan. And the loneliness in Japan makes that people fall in love with avatars, with voices and things like that, and they get real relief out of it. The only problem is it doesn't help them to operate in the regular world, right? So I agree with that. There is a risk of catering so well to it that there is no use anymore for human interaction. Right. And that might be the risk because there's a chemistry that happens when people unite. And we know that about oxytocin and things like that. So, yes, I think the risk is that we might have systems that are way better because, as Christoph said and I said, I think we're just flawed and we might be out, outperformed by it. So, I think that might be a risk. Yes. No, that's a very good point. Yeah. Thank you, Aline. It is clearly something probably it might someday be everything. But now it's time for something else. In this health enthusiasm world, we see the boundaries of industries blurring between the worlds of healthcare, wellness, and consumer businesses. You can see how consumer businesses are slowly moving into wellness and healthcare space, while the healthcare industry is paying more attention to what is happening outside of their own industry. This brings the following question. What behavior, innovation, or trend from one industry can be worthwhile to another industry? Or in other words, what should we bring inside out or outside in? This month, again, we will do things slightly differently. Instead of focusing on bringing behaviors, innovation or trends from one industry to another, this time around we will focus on bringing inspiration from one continent to another. Because we need to face it, we, we have a blind spot. We always mainly look into the industries in Western Europe and the US. And sure, we, in previous episodes, we talked about things like ByteDance, TikTok, Bianca, Tencent, and some other companies from Asia, but it was always rather limited. And of course, we have to admit there are many, many, many ideas, innovations, and trends in other parts of the world that we can learn from in Europe, in the US, or in any other parts. So the Healthy Doesn't Panel decided to try to also focus this inside-out segment on health innovations that can come from Africa, from South America, from China. And so far, we haven't found an expert on South America or Africa. So if you are one, please uh, do reach out via healththeism.com. But we have found one expert, one really great expert on China. And today, he is our special guest on the show. He is, I must say, a very smart person. He has lived in China and in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. So he knows a couple of things about innovation as well as China. In fact, he works as a keynote speaker on innovation in China. And he's also the author of two books on that same topic. And of course, he advises companies on their business strategies for China as well. So I could not imagine a better person to share this, his insights on health and self-care in China. Welcome, Pascal Coppens. Thanks, Christoph, for having me. Great to be here today. Lovely to have you. And basically, after this introduction, we only have one question for you. That is, 
What should people know? What should our audience know about what is happening with health and self-care in China? I mean, China and health has been in the news for a couple of years now, but it was always for the same topic, right? Lockdowns and COVID. But I'm pretty sure there is a lot happening there that we need to know about. Yeah, no, I mean, I've written a book about innovation in China, and one of the chapters is about smart health. And so this was like one-tenth of my book. There's a lot to talk about when we talk about China. But I think, and, and this is one of the things that, that Mo also mentioned, scale. And if you want to find scale, go to China. I mean, there's 1.4 billion people. And so whatever problem that you're trying to solve, you cannot solve it just by going for niche markets or niche solutions. You have to go for large-scale problems. And so China is, is actually the reason, the number of people is often the reason why things go very fast in solving problems, just simply because there's just too many pro people around. But one of the topics beside COVID that has been very popular the last year, and specifically this year, has been about aging and the demography. Uh, China is suddenly um, becoming less... Uh, populous in a number of people compared to India since the first time in, in decades. Now, I've lived in China for 20 years, and I can tell you overpopulation is also a huge problem. You don't want a shrinking population is a problem, but overpopulation is maybe an even bigger problem. One you can maybe solve, the other one you're stuck with. And so the reality is that China has tried to actually reduce the population for some time, but they're stuck with an, old, an older population now. An aging population of today, 260, 270 million people above 60 years old, so that are pension age. And by 2035, we're talking about uh, 400 million people. That's uh, as many, that's more than all the Americans together, 60 years or older. And so this is a huge issue for healthcare, of course. But it's not just that. It's, it's also that the, the older people are getting older every year. It's the life expectancy, which is great for China, but it's just booming like crazy. In the 1950s, I don't know if you know that, but uh, China had about, um, the average age was about 35 years old, uh, life expectancy. And in the, two, the year 2000, that's just 20 years ago, it was about 70 years old. Today, we're talking about 77 years old, and by 2030, it should be 79 years old. So every year, the Chinese are getting four months older on average. And so this, of course, creates a huge problem that a lot of people, older people, need to get better health care. And they're getting too old too fast, and they're not making enough babies. So that's one of the huge issues. But the bigger problem on top of that is uh, lifestyle. The Chinese have gotten richer. They've gotten better off. Uh, I mean, they've become the factory of the world, made a lot of money. And so that means that people now don't have just the basic needs anymore that they want to to actually satisfy, they also want better healthcare, a better, better life, a better happiness, because we were talking about happiness. And all that is something that they need specifically because their lifestyle also has other problems. In the last 20, 30 years, the rise of alcohol, the rise of smoking has been gone through the roof. I mean, there's more smokers in China than anywhere else or the whole world together almost. So it's crazy. And alcohol abuse as well. Uh, obesity as well is a big problem. People are getting, I mean, more... Um, Fat, I would say, or corporate. I mean, there's a lot of people in China that are these days getting fat with meat. The meat consumption have increased three times by uh, times three in the last 20 years. This is just going crazy on, on all factors and all aspects. And so the Chinese, because they were poor before, 
in the 80s and before that. I mean, they love to fat feed their, their children, and they all wanted to make uh, their child, their only child, a little Buddha, and that was, uh, that was their, their whole goal. But the reality here is that this all created a, a health issue. And so, on top of that, you have pollution, of course, with the environment. I mean, China is the biggest polluter in the world. I mean, we can go on and on and on. Reality, cancers, if you look at uh, health issues, blood issues, I mean, the heart diseases, anything you talk about, China is probably the number one in the world. And definitely in terms of number of people. So all that has created a need for healthcare. And the good news is that Chinese have more money. Today, there's like about, I would say, 500 to 600 million people living in the middle class that have the same quality of life as we have in Western Europe or in the US in the middle class. By 2030, that's in seven years from now, it will be 1 billion people being somehow having the same quality as we have in the middle class. They all want better health care, more happiness. They want a better life and better work-life balance. So this is the situation of China. And so how are you going to solve this? Well, the good news is that China has a central government. And that means in Beijing, they can make decisions. And when they make these decisions, usually they are ahead of target whenever they plan something. And they've done the same thing with healthcare. So in 2016, and that's a topic I wanted to address a little bit, to solve all these problems, the Chinese government launched the Healthy China 2030 plan. So about 15 years later, that should be achieved, so in seven years from now. And this is really going, I mean, it's on target. And so when the Chinese say we're planning for something, they plan for it. And it, it's crazy. I mean, they say life expectancy is going to go to 79 years old. And so they have another seven years to reach another three years added to the life expectancy. And they're going to do that in every possible way. Infant mentality from 0.8% to 0.5 or below, it has to go. It used to be 20% in 1950s of infant mortality. So, I mean, they're going a long way. Uh, air quality needs to be higher than 80% of the days need to be great air quality and so on. I mean, there's a list, an endless list of things. We're going to reach that. And so, how do you do that? Typically, Chinese government is doing it in, in the way they can. First, infrastructure. You need to build a good infrastructure. I mean, hospitals, it's one of the biggest issues in China is actually hospitals. There's not that there's not enough hospitals. The problem is that the AAA rated hospitals is about 8% of all the hospitals in China, but they take about 50% of all the patients. So half of the Chinese go and travel around the country with the high-speed train from the west of China all the way to Beijing to get the best care. And so when I was in, um, in China, I've been to hospitals a number of times, public hospitals. And on average, doctor in China in 2015, when the Healthy China 2030 was created, a doctor on average per day in a public hospital sees 100 patients. That is an average. And in some cases, it's up to 200 patients a day. That gives you five minutes to understand the problem, listen to the patients, give a diagnosis and then a prescription, and then it's next. It's the factory of healthcare. I mean, it goes in, out. And, and so there's a lack of doctors, but it's not that there's a lack of doctors, but there's a lack of doctors in the, in the AAA rated hospitals. And so this is ideal for telemedicine because there's a lot of doctors in the rural side that don't have actually uh, anything to do. And then in the, in the, in the big Hospitals, they have too much to do. And so this is great. And that's why this industry has boomed like crazy. But it's also that because the patients doesn't have a lot of time with the doctor, there's a lack of trust in the person, in the doctor. 
And that's something not often talked about. If you get five minutes to just uh, get a diagnosis, prescription and everything, I mean, you don't really know this person. The doctor sees 20,000 patients a year. He has no idea who you are and he doesn't really care who you are. He just wants to get to the next patient so at the evening he can go home with to his wife and or, or his, her husband. And so that's the whole idea. So Chinese trust technology more than they trust doctors very often when it's about diagnosis, simply because they can see the result of technology. They've been living through technology, have had mostly positive impacts on about technology, not so much as we. I mean, we didn't have as much positive impact as the Chinese did on their society. And so that means that they trust technology very lot, a lot. So AI, 5G, robotics, all this is going crazy in China because of that. But going back to what the government wants to do, infrastructure is the most important. And there I think... Chinese government is doing something that all the governments in the world could really learn from, is that they've decided in 2016 to put healthcare in all the policies of the government. So whatever policy you have that is created, whether it's in education, it's in manufacturing, it's in logistics, in, in HR, any policy you created that is government-driven, that has to be taken both mental and physical health care into account. You can't have a policy without it in there anymore. Same for sustainability, but that's a very different topic. But those two are in all the po policies these days. And that creates advancements in terms of, 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 of change. But the second point on these targets that they want to reach and how they want to reach is, is about having my health under my control. That's a saying in China. And this is all about making sure you manage your own health, personalized health care, but it's all about awareness. And so China is very good at propaganda. We know that. And so what they do is, is simply tell the people that they should care about their health. But this is not something new. I mean, this the Chinese government has been doing this for 2000 years. I mean, before it was the emperor and they were telling, yes, you have to take care of your, your health. And, and this is something part of the culture. So it's not alien to them. It's part of who they are. It's part of the society. But importantly, because lifestyle changed and the young generation had changed, this is going primarily towards the Gen Z population, so the, the very young people, and they're taking it just like here in the West. They want a more healthy life. They want a more balanced life. And so there's no difference between Chinese or, or Westerners, I would say, when it comes to young people having the same aspirations to, to have a, more work, a better work-life balance. The rat race in China is ending very much when you look at, uh, at young people. But they want specifically, and that's where the government uh, steps in again, that medication drugs become more affordable, more accessible, easy to pay for everybody, easy to get for everyone. And so a lot of these policies are actually created to make it easier to get both the data, the drugs, the diagnosis and everything. I think that's a direction we're all going in, into. But China is definitely leading simply because the government is saying you have to do it. And when the government says you have to do it, well, there's a lot of people that say this makes sense. Uh, also because there's a lot of money to be made. And that's the third point that I want to cover on this healthcare is that China has decided with the Healthy China 2030 or uh, 2030 to actually make health as a growth accelerator of the economy. And this is very different from my experience when I came back to Belgium in 2017 after 20 years in China, is that I saw healthcare very much as a cost center still. And in China, they see it very much as a growth accelerator. And so they've been starting to really push everything that builds economies around healthcare. Of course, companies, I mean, we've been talking about Apple, we've been talking about other companies, they know this, but the governments don't often follow in that same direction. And this is where 
China's different. They're pushing like crazy traditional Chinese medicine, which isn't just a Chinese thing. They could do this globally and become the, the factory of TCM and, and, and become again the provider of all kinds of supplements and things that have been around for thousands of years. I mean, the first pharmacy in, in China in the Imperial Palace dates from uh, more than a thousand years ago. And so this is where really it's, uh, it's something that they see as an opportunity. But also what they call internet plus health industry. So that everything in the in, in the health industry has to be digitized, has to be related to cloud, related to actually the, the whole internet connection. This is about telemedicine. They call it internet hospitals. And so every hospital, whether it's a platform like a Tencent or an Alibaba or a JD, has their own internet hospital selling drugs, giving diagnosis, lots of things. And there's about, just to give you an idea on telemedicine, there's about 300 to 350 million people that are uh, monthly active users on telemedicine in China. So it's not just a, a couple of people. This has grown in just five years' time. But it's also about the hospitals themselves that have internet hospitals within the hospital. So they have an, an online and an offline hospital. You see also all the new technologies, AI, 5G, robotics, blockchain, everything gets introduced. And, and there's, there's startups everywhere. I mean, I could give a lot of examples, but we're not going to go into there, into that aspect. And then there's biotech as well that is, is, is pushing like crazy. They're doing research like never before. Before, it was most, mostly Western medicine getting introduced, and they made mostly generics, just copying it, so being a fast follower. But now it's, it's all about research and developing their own. By the way, China just released uh, and approved their own mRNA vaccine uh, last month. So they were two years behind the U.S., but it's not that they're not doing anything. So it, it, is, it is going very, very fast. So this is this Internet plus health industry. And then there's two more things that I want to end with uh, that I think is, is a growth uh, accelerator for the economy that, that you see happening in China. One is on um, anything with travel, sports, anything that is good for your health and fitness. I remember when I was living in China, I mean, fitness centers was only for the very rich people that wanted to show off that they could buy a membership. Now everybody's doing fitness, but it's also a lot about travel. And this is about outdoor camping. I mean, surfing, fishing, skiing. It's hilarious because you don't, when you live in China, you don't see Chinese fishing or skiing or surfing. You see them go to factories and work and, and then go to the karaoke uh, at the evening, but not not taking time out. And, and this is something that is changing a lot. And so this is social. This goes back to what you were saying more as well about uh, relationships. I think, I mean, China is a relationship society. And so they want to do these things together and experience these moments together. And that's what's cool. And, and digital is just helping to make it, make it more efficient. But this whole travel and sports thing is going really crazy and big in China. But one of the industries that is very interesting is the pet industry. And I don't know if you heard about that. The Chinese are convinced since a couple of years that having a pet at home will really change your mental health. And so everybody's getting pets. And so anything to make sure that this pet is actually having a great life is, is you have to care for that pet. And so that, pair, that pet then cares for you. This is all these industries that are changing. It's all industries that are actually growing this economy and growing healthcare at the same time. And then you have things like health products, supplements, but also we were talking about live streaming at one, at a certain point. I mean, China's the biggest live streaming country in the world and advice on health, uh, both mental health as well as physical health, advice on, on, on supplements, on, on, 
on weight loss, on all these things. I mean, it's a lot more educational than it is often in the West, the social media. And that is because the Chinese feel, and that was because the, the internet came late. So because the internet came late in China, most people that went to the internet was not to search for something, it was actually to get educated about something. And that's very different from in the West. We have a search and now with ChatGPT, we're looking up things. The Chinese want to be told things from people that they trust. And so they're looking for trustworthy streamers online. And that's where healthcare really is taking off. So I could go on and on and on talking about lots of things, but I think I've given you a quick overview of why China is growing so fast in healthcare change. There's that scale, there's that need, there's the government who supports it. There's an economic benefit and Chinese love to make money. And then there's a lifestyle change, which actually makes new industries pop up that weren't available before. And I'll leave it with that just for now. I don't know, Christoph. Do you have any questions or or something that you? Yeah, I have, I have a ton of questions. I think it. Thank you for the um, the expose because it was really it was really nice. And there's a couple of things that came back. I mean, we already talked about transformative travel as being one of the one of the big trends in, in health and self care. One of the things that I also noticed is indeed the um, you know traditional Chinese medicine that become digitized in some way, so you can now learn about Ch- Ch- traditional Chinese medicine to apps, etc. Um, so those, those are interesting things that are happening. But I was, I really liked and I smiled the most, I guess, when you said health as an engine for growth instead of in the Western countries, health as being a cost. I've, maybe I have two questions. Maybe I, I'm not quite sure whether, whether the, the answer is, is easy, but when you look at health as an engine for growth, what is the time span they look at it then? Is it, I mean, because the reason why we do, why we consider it in, in, in Europe and, and in the States being a cost is because we need in the short term save money. While if you use health for growth, it's mostly in the long term. So is it possible to actually, you know, have that same mentality in the short term as well? That's my first part of the question. The second part is, do you see the same mentality within private companies as much as they are private, of course, as well. The same that they consider health as being an engine for growth for them. Those were my two questions. Okay, so I'll give you a couple of answers. But um, when it comes to short-term and long-term, I think the biggest difference that I've experienced between China and Western Europe, for example, is that when the Chinese plan for something like the infrastructure, you can be 99.9% sure that it will arrive on time. And so that happened with 5G, to give you an example. And so when you say 5G will come end of 2020, I mean, by the end of 2020, China had 500,000 5G base stations ready. We in Belgium were still debating who would get the licenses. And so that means that people are building applications because the infrastructure will come. And so this is where China has a, a plan for 2030. So that's only in seven years from now. And so everything is planned since 2015, So it's a 15-year window that they've started seven years ago and have seven years to go almost. And so that means that people know that this, this, this will just continue. Companies start building applications because the infrastructure is there and because the policy is there. And I think we often wait for the policies and the infrastructure to start building applications. And by the time the infrastructure is there, the Chinese already built their application. And so I think that's one, one big difference. On the private and public thing, I think the hospitals are mostly public. I mean, 50% of all expenditure in China comes from public, from, so from the government. But there's still a lot of uh, private, but private hospitals are still a small portion. 
but that is growing very, very fast. When you look at, at public or private uh, companies, I mean, both are chipping in into this healthcare industry. Both state-owned enterprises are actually helping create more healthy environments for their employees because they have the same talent issues as we have. They have the same consumer expectation issues as we have. And then the privates as well. The difference is that usually the private companies in China are much more competitive amongst themselves and with the state-owned enterprise. So I would say that the difference that I've experienced always is that when somebody has an idea like a smart watch or a smart toilet, by the way, the smart toilet is something that iCarbonX has been uh, building for the last five years, and it's one of their most popular uh, products. I'm not going to go into this this company, but uh, but smart toilets is really the, the, the future for China. But when they build this, in Belgium, in America, where I used to live in Silicon Valley, there's like one, two, three companies doing that, and they all kind of find their own space. And then they say, I'm unique on that aspect, and my competitor is doing something unique on that aspect. In China, they're all going for the same thing. And so that means you have all this competition. It means people are doing it faster. They're doing it more experiential, more agile. They they, they try out things. They, they, they care more about the customer because otherwise they lose the customer. And so the dynamic of the market is much faster, which means that the private companies are building new crazy things. 90% doesn't work, 10% works, and then it becomes big. And then the public companies are, are also fighting for survival and they need to innovate as well. So I think it's the competition that creates the, the change and not so much private versus public. It's just the, the market in itself. It's a great and a privileged way of being onboarded on that entire different ecosystem. Because from what I've learned from you, Pascal, is that it's it's not just what they do, but also the ecosystem they create for it to succeed. And, you know, listening at you, I just, I just saw that how the fact that we are fragmented here in Europe doesn't help. But what fascinates me, and maybe you can, you can, how do they hold people, the government accountable? Because the problem is if we have policy here, it, you know, you have people changing it every three or four years with the elections. So what is the secret of delivery and I've heard once, and maybe it's a myth, that if an engineer signs off for a bridge, he is accountable for the rest of his life for that bridge. So I think how, maybe that's a myth and maybe you can challenge that, but how do they hold people and teams and organization accountable for these projects? And maybe we can learn from that. What we miss too often is that the Chinese policymakers are mostly, not all of them, but mostly experts in their own field. While we in the West, in general, because of our democratic system, we get elected based on whether we appeal to an electorate, which means that you can have in Belgium, where I'm from, I think for, we had like nine ministers of health and one was uh, actually a doctor. In China, we, you would have nine doctors. And so I think that's the first difference. So when you have experts in the field that they are responsible for, they usually have not just a better understanding of the field, but they also have a network in that field and can feel better what the population expects. What and so they understand societal change much better because they're part of that of that change. So that that's one thing. The second thing is is to do with the meritocracy of China. It's not that Xi Jinping, for example, became a president because uh, he pushed everybody away. It's because for forty years in a row he's been proving himself 
every year that he's been doing good things. And then when you do that 40 years, the last year you can do bad things. But the reality is you have been doing it for 40 years in a very good thing, good way. And so this is how most of the policies are built. It's built on people that have been monitored their whole career on improving the life of the, their consistence. So the people that are they're responsible for. They're the citizens. And that doesn't always work out, but it's a system that actually is uh, working pretty well because you built on, on experience. So that is a little bit why I believe the Chinese are maybe not more accountable, but they have been more accountable in the past or can be counted on, could have been counted on in the past much more often. And so you can extend that to the future. Accountability is also a social thing. And that's maybe the third thing, is that this is about uh, Confucianism. I'm not going to go into philosophy here. But it's that you are being held accountable by the people around you. So your family, your friends, your colleagues, they're constantly, you have to live up to their expectation of you. And that is something that's part of the culture, which means you're accountable because if you fail, actually the group fails. Wonderful. Very inspiring. I was also thinking that, you know, if each country, there's also a critical mass to get things started, right? And I think China excels in reaching that critical mass because I think the heavy lifting might be in conceiving and engineering it and then rolling it out. But I think a lot of organizations and governments don't have the critical mass even to consider it. So, And we're not very good at collaboration. So I think that that also helps. So I think I'll shut up from now, but I think it, it's been incredibly inspiring. Thank you very much, Pascal. Pascal, thank you. It was very, very inspiring yeah, to, to hear what's happening over there. So I'm curious to know, so you've been spending 20 years in China. Now you're back in Europe. So when you were in China experiencing the healthcare system, what were you missing from the say, Belgium European healthcare system? And now that you're back in Belgium, what are you missing from the China healthcare system? That's actually an, an excellent question. When I was in China, you have to know, I've been in China from early 90s up to 2016. So that is like five different healthcare systems uh, because every five years you have a complete different uh, China. In the early 90s, I can tell you, you did not want to go to a public hospital in China. It was a bad idea. So in the 90s, what we did, me and my, my family, is every time we had a, a, an issue, medical issue, we flew back to, to Belgium or to Hong Kong. We didn't trust the system. I mean, it was very simple. And that was purely because not enough doctors and, and too many patients. And, and so it was a factory. So that was something that I could not appreciate. And so what I always appreciated when arriving in Belgium is that the time that was spent with the doctor, the fact that they knew who you were, they knew sometimes your, your family, your background. They, I mean, this kind of a personal connection. And I missed that in China, definitely in the 90s, early this century. But also the system itself. I mean, everything got paid back in China, not so much because salaries were very low and still today. So even the insurance pays you back. I mean, you're just getting paid back for, for the basic medical care. But 98% of the Chinese now have basic healthcare insurance. So that's, that's, that's something uh, like it was only 30% uh, 30 years ago. So it's, it's much different, but it's basic, very basic. But at the same time, what I didn't miss in, uh, so what, what, what really annoyed me in Belgium was that I always had to go to 
a doctor before being able to go to the hospital. And so I just wanted to see a specialist. In China, you can see a specialist all the time. There's no issue to see specialists. Uh, you have to wait in line, but you can you can actually, after two or three days waiting in line, you can actually see whoever you want to see. That was not possible in Belgium. Specifically, I came back and I had to wait two months. I said, yeah, but I'm here for two weeks. Then I go back to Belgium, to China. It's not going to work out. How I'm even for a dentist appointment or any any kind of appointment. So this was really something I didn't, but it was all paid back. So that was the good thing. But just this delay. And, and then the last 10 years, because of the digitalization of China, I felt that Belgium and was always going one year behind every year where I could do things in China. Even just buying medicine online was, was really easy. Now you can do that. But before the pandemic, it wasn't so easy to do all these things. Got a consultation. I mean, not that I did it, but many of my employees did that. It was very, very easy. So what I missed of China is this the digital revolution that, that really took off much faster. But also, and this is one thing that uh, Christophe was mentioning, every time you go to a doctor in China, in a public hospital, private hospital, or any general practitioner, what you get is prescription for both Western and Chinese medicine every time. So they just bet on two horses. One might not work, and then the other one will work. And so you always get like lots of drugs that you take home. But if you believe in traditional Chinese medicine, you don't have to be religious about it in China. You can just take both and, and you will actually, I mean, usually it's one or the other will, will, will be beneficial. This is one of the reasons why not many old people uh, took a vaccine in China. It's because they trusted the traditional Chinese medicine much more than, than they trusted the, the Western vaccine. And I'm not talking about where it was developed, but more the fact that it was a Western medicine vaccine. That was good. But otherwise, no, I think because of the amount of people in China, I still prefer going to a hospital here in Belgium. And I think there's still a long way to go for China to reach the same level. The difference is they have 1.4 billion people. And if I see where they're coming from, I mean, there's no country that makes made such a transition in so little time. And so for if I would be a Chinese, if you would ask me as a Chinese living in the rural areas in China, I mean, this is a transformation. So, yes. Thank you. Lovely. This has been amazing, Pascal. Thank you. For the audience that wants to follow up on this, and you can go to his website, pascalcopens.com. That's C-O-P-P-E-N-S. And But it's time to wrap up the uh, Health Enthusiasm podcast for this month. Thank you all for listening. If you like the show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. By the way, you can also find us on the Shift Forward Health channel. It's a podcast channel of thought leaders who are actively designing and building the health and self-care business of tomorrow. For now, I'd like to thank our own thought leaders for their insights and health enthusiasm. Thank you, Aline Noiset, Mozuina, and our special guest, Pascal Coppens. My name is Christophe Choquet. We are the Health Enthusiasm Panel, and we'd love to see you again next month for some more health enthusiasm. Ciao. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please spread the word. Tell your colleagues to tune in for all the awesomeness, then leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This show is produced by Shift Forward Health, the channel for changemakers. Subscribe to Shift Forward Health on your favorite podcast app, and you'll be subscribed to our entire library of shows. See our full lineup at shiftforwardhealth.com. One subscription, all the podcasts you need, and it's all for free. And remember, we might have a lot of work to do in healthcare, but we'll get there faster together. Thanks again.